for July 21st, 2014. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 316. Why baptize your hatchet in fish blood? Why not? Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny which it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, I'm Matt Rather, and I am here with Pete Fenzel. Hello! Mark Lee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Shana Malofsky. Snowpiercer. <laughs> I'm really excited about Snowpiercer, guys. Uh, me too. Um, so uh, we have seen Snowpiercer and we've listened to some Weird Al, and we're going to talk about both of these things on this podcast. Uh, but before we do, panel, uh, your question of the week. How did you spend your purge night? Uh, it, we, it's just recently passed. Two nights ago was... All crime was legal. <laughs> all crime. All crime. We'll play your tomatoes in a public park. Well, <laughs> without a leash. Uh, um, net neutrality was suspended, and so the internet was down, right? Oh, yeah, because like, we had that to begin with, right? I, okay. that, was, that was a law to begin with, so it was broken. Oh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> no, uh, no joke. Uh, now let me let me hijack us down a rat hole a little bit. I went to a um, I went to a, a birthday party for a friend of mine's kid, one year old, and I saw a high school friend who I hadn't seen in maybe since high school. Uh, and this high school friend uh, works in the city of Los Angeles traffic signal uh, division, and informs me that there is in fact an Italian job like room. From which all the traffic signals in the city of Los Angeles are controlled, or at least are observed, or something like this. And so I'm sure that my friend spent purge night just changing traffic signals at random, <laughs> causing gridlock and, and uh, uh, doing things like this. But I, I was astonished by this. And I, I was thinking, um, I, was thinking uh, I have a question for you guys after, after the question of the week. But let's go into the question of the week first. It's Pete Fenzel. The cheat, we installed the traffic switches so that you could turn the traffic lights on and off, not so you could have traffic switch light raves. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the system was down. The system was down. Okay, so after getting some some wings at happy hour here in Massachusetts, which is illegal. But you were uh, not happy! No, 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 no. You can't have drink discounts in Massachusetts due to state law. So uh, I got a $2 uh, Boston summer Ale, Boston, uh, uh, Sam Adams, Summer Ale, and then uh, every people who've been listening to the podcast know that I've been thinking about buying a car, so I bought a Tesla Model S directly from the manufacturer, <laughs> circumventing all the state laws that make it illegal for car companies to sell direct to consumer. Uh, as some of you may know that this has been a, a struggle that the Tesla Motor Company has been dealing with to try to grow as kind of an inventory lean, modern day techie sort of manufacturer. They've been trying to sell cars over. Over the internet, and it's illegal because there are laws in the books that say, uh, well, we want to have car dealerships in all parts of the country. We don't want somebody to invest in building a car dealership in like West Virginia only to have the car company then uh, circumvent the dealership and sell direct. And we don't want large sections of the country to have no car repair or sales infrastructure. And this is something that happened back in the early 20th century. So there are laws on the books that say you have to have a car dealership. Uh, you cannot sell cars directly from you know Ford.com, Toyota dot com uh kia.edu or whatever it is that they do state, state uh, by state by state though right isn't it uh 
Yeah, I think it's I think it's it varies state by state. I think, but I'm, I'm think it's I don't think it's a is it a, I don't think it's a federal law. I think it's state laws. Yeah, yeah. it hasn't because uh-huh. it hasn't. Produ- I mean, it seems like these days every third car is a Tesla Model S in Beverly yeah. Hills and whatnot. I, well, I think there. No, 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 no. You can still there. There, I think there is a federal law. But because there was the thing that went to WhiteHouse.gov, and then he said Congress has to take care of it. So I think there's a federal law, but it has to go through. The way that Tesla gets around it is it sets up showrooms, which are essentially dealerships, and you and then it's it tries to petition for dealership licenses. It can sell them in different markets, and through this sort of process of workarounds and various kinds of ways of of dealing with it. I mean, there are also workarounds the other luxury car companies use. You can order a BMW direct from Europe, sure. but you have to like go to Europe and get it. Or like there's this thing where they they take a BMW. BMW and they drive it through 400 miles on the autobahn so they can call it used so that it can be imported to the United States with less tax and regulation, right? So like have you, all mean, sorts of. Have you ever seen yep. a Tesla showroom? I've never seen a showroom. No, there are a fair number of Teslas here in uh, Cambridge, uh, where uh, I live. Well, I mean, of Somerville, course, there yeah. there would be, wouldn't there? But the um, <laughs> uh, well, because there's there's money in liberals. But the yeah. uh, the Tesla showroom that's in the Century City Mall, a uh, a sort of you know shishi mall on the edge of on the edge of Beverly Hills is uh is a like it's uh this it's a mall slot it's like a one slot store and they've like backed a Tesla Model S into it it's the size it's the same footprint as the Wetzel's pretzels next door you know does it emit a similar overwhelming smell <laughs> <laughs> no i think wetzel's paid i think they pay in order to uh, have the the franchise for admitting the for emitting the the smell but it's uh i mean it's like you know it's just the you walk in and and the car's there and you kind of edge awkwardly around the sides of the room because the car is taking up uh the car is taking up most of it you know so much for the so much for the tesla showrooms right yeah, no. Pete, I, did I you pay full price? Uh, I actually bought it in Bitcoin, <laughs> <laughs> which also uh, during the purge, I actually bought it in Dogecoin. Uh, actually, I, I confess it was a cryptocurrency, but I wanted to break as many rules as possible. Uh-huh. So I broke the rule of Bitcoin being the most socially acceptable and respectable uh, cryptocurrency. Uh, Pete, Pete, so, don't I respond? Wow. Such purge. Such purge. <laughs> much, much illegalness. <laughs> much crime. Very lawless. Much crime. Much crime. So such crime. legal. <laughs> so crime. So crime. Much legal. Yes. Uh, Mark Lee, next in the alphabet. How did you spend purge night? I spent purge night violating all the terms of my lease. <laughs> Every single one? Every single one, yeah. Dude, well, first poor Drano down okay. the drain. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. First and foremost, I listed it and rented it on Airbnb. Which I'm pretty sure is illegal in New York State. And uh, by the way, there's a really interesting thing going on where Airbnb is basically doing a lobbying and charm offensive to try to uh, sway New York City lawmakers to change the laws so that um, Airbnb is legal on nights other than purge nights. So that's why yeah, that's why they did that. Either. Yeah, that's why they did that uh, logo there, that rebranding, right? As yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. so, here's, here's the thing about purge night as well, is that um, you can figure out like how much it costs or retrofit your domicile to be purge proof, right? And then you can invest that money and then you can determine a going market rate for a purge night rental. Okay? And so you list your place on Airbnb as, you know, as a purge night special and you charge an exorbitant amount of money, but it still is cheaper than uh, what you would have to uh, outlay in terms of capital expenses to uh, protect your home from the purge. So that's one thing that I would do. But here, this is a real kicker, all right? I got a copy of my lease open right here. Um, and uh, our, uh, Article 39, Section 4 states that um, floors of the unit must be covered by carpets or rugs. 
Water beds or furniture containing liquid are not allowed in the unit. Except for purge night. No rugs and water beds, <laughs> baby. It's going to be crazy. Or water rugs on the ceiling. <laughs> Did you get a ferret? And also, are ferrets still illegal in New York? I'm not sure. I think they are still illegal, and I should get a ferret on, on purge night as well. <laughs> Thanks, Giuliani. Yep. I just signed a new lease, and there's a special addendum to the lease that forbids you from pouring pasta down the sink. So I know what I'm doing next purge <laughs> night, guys. <laughs> Wait, really? No, no pasta down the sink. I mean, that's there's a, like a yeah. It's a it's terrible. Specifically idea. typed in. It's specifically typed into the lease in like an additional category. It says no pasta to before down the sink. God, what about orzo? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't ask about gnocchi or a risotto or an orzo <laughs> or anything like that. Um, are are dumplings qualified under the pasta down the sink clause? <laughs> what if it's just the skins of the dumplings? Is it a is that technically a ravioli? <laughs> This, yeah, know. exactly. The 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 Spetzli codicil specifies that no German noodles shall be. Uh, you know, yeah. this is this is why we need the purge, just to dispense with all the decadence of our modern, over-legislated <laughs> world with too many pasta definitions. Uh, Shana Malovsky is uh, is here with us. We're glad to have you, Shana. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here. How did you spend uh- purge night? So I didn't know that Purge Night was happening, and I've never actually seen the Purge. Guys, no! I know. And then, so I, I uh, this is very disturbing. I worked Friday night. <laughs> oh, terrible. So if I had another Purge Night, like a rain date Purge Night, what I would do is not work, and I would just loiter places. Like wherever there's a sign that says no loitering, I would just loiter the crap out of it. Just stand there and, I don't know, look like one of those, uh, you know, those Legos with the mean faces and the freckles and the backwards hats that just look uh, like playground bullies. They're just like loitering around looking like they're going to start crap with people. That is what I want to be. I want to be one of those Lego guys under those signs. I feel like you should also uh, have a yo-yo. Like, oh, me, yeah. Nothing says loitering like a yo-yo. You're just like I'm gonna a yo-yo up and down. I'm not going anywhere. I got no reason, good reason to be here. I'm just doing my yo-yo. Loiter. Wait. Maybe a slingshot, but that seems a little, I don't know, cliche. I'll think about it. I, I, like, I like this idea. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I, guess it's, um, I guess it's my turn. Uh, here's how I celebrated. I lost my temper, and I took a knife, and I, uh, you know those <gasps> little do not remove under penalty of law labels they put on mattresses? Uh? Well, I cut one off. Crickets. I mean, yay! Go fight the power. I'm putting the YouTube uh, link reference in the uh, in the show notes. That's a line from Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Is there anywhere else where the phrase "under penalty of law" is used? <laughs> like maybe in the five print of FBI warnings on DVDs. <laughs> like, what is under under penalty of? I mean, if Ben were on here as our resident uh, steamship captain slash lawyer, uh, he could. Sorry, this uh, naval officer, not steamship captain. He could tell us what uh, what it means for something to be under penalty of law. Does that mean that the law just sort of shows up and is like, tisk tisk? Uh, I guess it means it's illegal, right? This is illegal is what under penalty of law means, right? Or um, is there some – yeah. Yeah, I mean uh, he's, a, he's a mariner and a lawyer but not a maritime lawyer. Take to the sea! <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess – I mean I guess so. Um, 
I what what on earth does that mean other than this is illegal? Yeah, I mean, I, unless there's some sort of penalty that's prescribed by the law that's somewhat dubiously applied to this given situation. Like, there is a penalty under the law, but maybe you aren't going to be subject to it. I don't know. I shouldn't say this because I'm not a lawyer. I, it's, a, I, mean, it's fu- I mean, it's funny the way we, discuss, we describe things as being under, under something, right? Which is, which is what? Subordinate to something? Like, one nation under, under God, indivisible, or... Uh, under law or under penalty of law, right? Like, uh, what what is the underness? Like, what is the or or rather, what is the aboveness? Right? That the that the law or the penalty or the god has. I mean, yeah. Unless you think of it as literal, right? Like it's on a cloud and it's looking down at you. Um, it seems like an intuitive concept, but not one that's particularly easy to unpack once you kind of dispense with the initial assumption mm-hmm. that the law is like above you. I mean, does, is under the penalty is like under the law means that like the guy with the two by four is like right over your head, like walking tall style is just going to crack it down on you just metaphorically. Uh-huh. Or is it more like an umbrella that's shielding you from rain, you know, or like a, a towering parent? Is it about child and pa- children and parents? Is that it? Because the law is taller than you. You must be a child with relation to it. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the, the law sort of tends to you, takes cares for you. Speaking of the law caring for you, here's a question. I, I, oh, sorry. Oh, I, yeah. I wanted one more. I, I want. I prefer to think of the law as a lucky, lucky two, like a, a, a being in a cloud that hovers back and forth above you and tosses eggs, spiny eggs, at you. Penalty. That into it. That's the penalty of law. That's the penalty of law. Is, is lucky two spinies, which cannot be jumped on without legal representation. <laughs> um, let me ask you a question. You're uh, you're at an intersection. Right, it's a hypothetical. You're at an intersection. It's three in the morning. There's no one around for miles. Uh, you can see in all directions, uh, but you're at a red light, and you're stopped at the red light. And the other, the other light is green. And this is, I don't know, an old-fashioned intersection where uh, there are no sensors in the ground or something like that. Um, do you think it's it's ethically permissible to run the the red light in a situation in a non purge everyday situation? How do you guys feel about that? Well, can I bring in the cross cultural perspective, uh. which is that in Puerto Rico, uh, it's actually I think it's the law, unless I was told uh, it was a lie, which maybe it was. Um, but I believe after two in the morning until six in the morning, you are legally allowed to do that. You can treat a red light as a stop sign. So other countries get this. So you're saying? I mean, it's a, not really another country. Uh, let's not go there. There's, anyway, a, there's yes. a nightly purge. <laughs> I mean, look, it, it is like the murder capital of the U.S. if it were part of the U.S. So I guess it's it's always a purge in Puerto Rico. <laughs> Title. Um, the, uh, I don't know. What do you? I mean, Mark, you're a New Yorker, but Pete, what do you what do you think as a as a driver? Oh, well, everybody, of course, knows all about my driving from our car podcast. Uh, is it ethically permissible? Uh, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't run the red light. I would. I would. I think that the basis for not running the red light is um, not assuming the preeminence of your own consequentialist knowledge over the situation, right? Like this idea that oh, I can, I can ascertain by looking at the situation that I know that it's safe for me to break this rule. 
right? Like, uh, and I'm using this kind of practical information to overwhelm somewhat of somewhat of a synthetic judgment, perhaps somewhat of a not of a not a practical, but more of an abstract kind of judgment. This this rule that you have to stop at red lights. Of course, then you're like, well. How about your faculty to observe whether the light is red? How can you know whether you know that the light is actually red? <laughs> why, why should you stop if, you, if it's only your own faculty of observation, which is such a poor arbiter of moral decisions? I mean, because, That's- Pete, what if you see red and I see red and we're really seeing two different colors? And could you yeah. pass me the bong? <laughs> it's not, I'll pass you the qualia if that's what you want. <laughs> I have another cross-cultural uh, story to bring to this uh, um, I w- situation I would text here. At the red light, would. I would text at the red light, which is a bad idea. Anyway, go ahead, Mark. Okay, so uh, um, many years ago, there was a Korean man who's in the United States um, and was confronted with pretty much the exact same situation we're talking about here. Uh, you know, middle of nowhere, country road, um, red light, uh, no cars around, and he was very impressed that the American driver he was with actually stopped at the red light um, and obeyed the rule of law. And he saw that Korea was just a chaotic country, was unruleable, and the United States was a nation of laws. This is sort of an orderly country. where Under, uh, under laws, even. Under laws, even. Yeah. Anyway, so this man was Chan Doo-hwan. He eventually uh, led a coup d'etat against the Korean government, declared martial law, and uh, sort of did a reverse purge where he um, killed a bunch of civilians to, to enforce said martial law. So, yeah. Red lights. Lead Wait, how is that a reverse purge? Isn't that an Just actual purge? Um, that's a good question. Is it martial law a reverse purge? I mean, like there are extra laws that are enforceable uh, through military force. I mean, if you kill a bunch of people because of their political beliefs, isn't wouldn't you call that a purge? But then. Um, yeah, but usually, it's, usually it's, it's, Ill, it's if they're usually it were illegal to kill them. Yeah, I guess yeah, so. It's, it, it, is a, it is a purge, but the, but the depressing actual kind, and not the awesome kind that you make movies about. Yeah, the point of the movie purge is all crime is legal, but it doesn't cease to be crime. So you could still have gangsters and whatnot, and it doesn't just become run by insurance companies like when actual crime is legal. <laughs> uh, so. I'm saying is purge like the verb cleave, where it means itself and also its opposite simultaneously. <laughs> Perhaps. And to be clear, I'm not saying that the insurance companies actually do the crime, but I'm just saying that if there were something that were to go wrong, you could buy a policy, it would cover it, you know, so on and so forth. Take It's called risk. Crime that's not crime is called risk, is what it is. I uh, yeah I I'm I'm with you Pete about not running the uh, about not running the red light I think that that like uh, you must act in accordance with that that principle whereby you may simultaneously wish it to be a maxim right like uh, and and uh, the the traffic system only protects us all if we all obey it uh, sort of unthinkingly right. Yeah. Although, of course, uh, as I'm sure would incense you, I would point out that the people, the two people on the podcast most likely to trust the traffic system and its unfailing moral logic are like the two privileged people who should be going to the coat check or something, right? Like uh, the least diverse of our diverse group because diversity is a quality of people, not of societies, right? I don't know. Whatever. I'm just saying I've benefited so much from the traffic system in my life that it's not really fair for me to prevent other people from protesting against it. Hey, Pete. (laughs) Check your valet ticket. Yeah. <laughs> check your blinkers. Check your rearview mirrors. Check all of it. Check everything. There it was. Check your rearview mirrors. There was the there was the joke. 
Purges in the rearview mirror may appear closer than they are, folks. <laughs> <laughs> that was your meatloaf reference of the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> That's one of three. There shall be three meatloaf references this podcast. <laughs> three. Like a prophecy of some sort. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. Ah, many purges ago, a prophecy was foretold that there would be a podcast and it would have three meatloaf references in it. Hey, uh, speaking of musicians from the 80s and before. Um, yes, so, <laughs> go uh, on. <laughs> several, several years ago. Um, a prophecy was foretold? <laughs> an album was released and it was called Alapalooza. Uh, I think that's that's the one it was. And uh, Weird Al hadn't released a uh, an album in a long, long time. And I played it for my good friend, Pete, Fren- Pete Fenzel. And I think we were in college or very soon after college. And uh, it had come out and there were some things I was pretty stoked about on it. And I played it for Pete. And, and Pete's response was one of, of gratitude, one of sort of thankfulness, as, as though he could sort of metaphorically, like, uh, fall to his knees and kiss the ground. And I remember the words you said, Pete, at, at that time. I don't know if you remember them, but you said, thank you, Weird Al. Uh, thank you for coming back to us. We have needed you. We needed you. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I think what you were saying at the time had something to do with sort of how self-important you, you felt the music was, how, how self-important it seemed at the time. Um, it might have been Poodle Hat. Oh, maybe. Him. Yeah, yeah. It could have been yeah. Poodle Hat. Probably because yeah. Alapalooza maybe came out when we were in high school. A- Alapalooza was 1993, and it uh, features an excellent parody of the Jurassic Park logo on is, its cover. Is Poodle Hat the one where the cover is him on a subway? That is correct, yes. yes. Okay, yeah, then it was, it was Poodle Hat. Um, Poodle Hat's a great album, by the way. I love Poodle Hat. <laughs> <laughs> I particularly love the hardware store song, which is my favorite Weird Al Yankovic original song, where he lists everything at a hardware store, and the percussion is all hardware store stuff. But anyway, continue. And and Poodle Hat also contains one of my favorite of the polkas, uh, which is the Angry White Boy polka. Uh, but let's uh, but let's save that. Let's save that. Um, I don't know if uh, you guys greeted this week's return of Weird Al. Yankovic uh, with his album Mandatory Fun and the eight videos in eight days uh, initiative with that kind of relief but uh, or that kind of gratitude. But uh, whether or not you did, Weird Al is here anyway. Um, how, what did you guys think of, of Mandatory Fun? We've had, uh, we've had seven of the eight videos uh, so far. We had Tacky. We had Word Crimes. We had Foil, uh, Handy. The school fight song, first world problems, and lame claim to fame. Uh, with one more coming out, there will be. Did you one say more. foil? Yes, foil came out. Got it. Uh, I'm actually looking at the Weird Al site now, and I'm, I'm uh, remembering them from the thumbnails in the uh, on the homepage in, in Weird Al. And then the the Monday one, we haven't seen it yet because we record on on Sunday, so we've seen seven of the eight videos, and um, have listened to the album on one of the streaming services or perhaps bought it at, at iTunes or Amazon or something like that. Um, I, I sort of don't know where to, uh, where to begin. So, okay. I'll start. Yeah. Um, it seems like weird owl essentially is, um, the parody song equivalent of the poet laureate of America. And that like, he is the guy that Americans turn to for their parodies, for their parodies of, of popular tunes. 
of the day, right? Like he just has this monopolistic um, control over this uh, very particular niche of the music market, right? Who else does this? And who else is be like, oh, yep, it's time for a parody of, uh, you know, of, of the top number one songs in the pop songs of the day and to skewer them and to put them in their place. Uh, who else does that but Weird Al? And I just find it fascinating that it's like just this guy, this accordion playing, uh, curly haired, um, beautiful human being. Well, but isn't that that's not what a poet laureate does, though, right? Like a poet laureate isn't the only person allowed to write poetry. The poet laureate is like the paragon that everybody sure. thinks is awesome. Yeah, okay, so that's not the right thing. But it's it's. Well, I think it's like, a good analogy, though. The, I think you are saying he is good. He's like a poet laureate, right? Um, I mean, you're saying that other people can't make money off of it. Is that the concern? Or maybe, okay, I'm, I guess I'm mixing a couple different things here, right? Yeah. When I say poet laureate, I say like there's this one person of eminence of this particular type of art. Yes. Right. And but the other thing going on here is this uh, marketplace. Uh, analysis, which says that the market is small for these types of songs, and there's one person who seems to have a stranglehold on it. Mm. Well, I mean, this is probably the last Weird Al album. So this is probably the you last. Think so, oh, yeah, yeah, it's the end of his record deal. Oh yeah, that's why. That's what it is. It's called Mandatory Fun because it's the last album of his record contract, and he had to do like 13 albums or whatever under his record contract. Really, if only all of us had such problems. But yeah, and so this was an album he had to make to finish his re- record contract, and he yeah. believes that. Yeah. He, go ahead, go ahead, Matt. Oh, I got ninety nine problems, but but the purge ain't one. <laughs> uh, but he sort of believes that the album is dead. Uh, that that the the record the industry doesn't support it. Not in terms of like the the industry doesn't think it's a good idea, but that the market doesn't want to buy albums anymore. And certainly, parody is something that he thinks needs to be faster and needs to be more responsive to the moment because it needs to spread through social media. And, and to do that, it needs to be extremely current. So he's leaving albums after this album. He has said, and he's going to be releasing content much more on like a one off basis. Uh, presumably he won't stop doing concerts uh, and the albums are useful because they provide you know material for the concerts but yeah this is i think i think even if the marketplace thinks that weird al is this paragon that will be the only person that's allowed to do this weird al doesn't think that weird al doesn't think that the marketplace can even support him anymore um and uh it's just sort of his it's sort of a fluke that he's he might get a number one album with like 70 million copies 70, 70 million. That would be a lot. 70,000 copies. Like, he's fighting with Jason Mraz for potentially being the number one album this week, right? Uh, after this huge outpouring of support from all corners. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, it, is, it is certainly the case that for a long time he was the only one doing it. But like, we have other comic novelty acts, right? Like, uh, like Lonely Island, right? And certainly uh, On a Boat is somewhat of a parody, even if it's not of a specific song. Um, but you mean the ones where they change the lyrics to something that's funny? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. I mean, lots of people do it, like all over the, we do it, right? And we sure, do it on yeah. YouTube and other people do it on YouTube. And I guess, I guess, I mean, is the question is Weird Al, is he so good that he's the only one that you would pay to have here do it? And I would say he's pretty good. He's pretty good. He was also, was he a first mover? Does he have the first mover advantage? Like he was the first person to crank out these kind of things? Well, I mean, he, I was, he, look, he has a sort of strong first mover advantage, but he, he wasn't the, the first person to crank out these things. He was the first person to cross over from like, quote unquote, novelty radio into and like the Dr. Demento show into something more like mainstream success. Right. Yeah. Certainly so the, he's an early mover in, in video. There's a big medium for him. Right, like to take the Dr. Mento thing onto music videos is a big jump for Weird Al. Right, and the the he he hit he it was sort of a right place, right time kind of thing with yeah. him and the ascendancy of MTV uh, mm-hmm. at the same time. Though I mean, there were um, like comedy 
sort of comedy music performers who did these sort of parodies or, or sort of travesties of, you know, popular songs. I mean, Weird Al is, is a type of Victor Borga, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that is to say he's not not a type of Victor Borga. <laughs> I mean, what was like his, his, uh, his video breakout? Would it be uh, the Michael Jackson parody, uh, Fat? Is that what it was? A parody of Bad? Uh, Remember I think, like the, the thing where he blew up to the size of like a, a, a massive uh, balloon, which yeah, by yeah. the way, he does, he does live in concert. I don't know if you oh, guys have that's, seen that's Weird awesome. Al live, but his like, there are quick change booths at both sides of the stage. And like during the, the 32 bar intro of each song, like he's changing into and out of, uh, or rather out of and into like another full on costume. It, it is an amazing, uh, show. Um, it's really awesome. I've seen it. Oh um, my god, he did both eat it and fat. Yeah, <laughs> like two Michael Jackson parodies that are both food related. Yeah, they're both awesome, oh and he, they're both really, really. He has a whole album of food songs, and he continues to make new ones, which is one of the things that makes Foils so great because it seems like it's going to be. Just oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Song, which, which he has acknowledged, by the way. If, if anyone remember the um, the Thirty Rock uh, incident or the incident, not the uh, his appearance on Thirty Rock, where um, I think it was Jenna Maroney was uh, complaining that Weird Al kept uh, making uh, food parodies of her songs. <laughs> I, I remember it, but it's... Yeah, not specifically. But I did... Actually, the foil thing, um, it makes me think of the his contract situation where he had all these songs about food, and now he's talking about um, saving it like a leftover and reheating it afterwards. <laughs> so I wonder if he was uh, thinking about that too, because um, all the videos were sort of uh, struggling with the idea of like commercialism. Like the foil video was an infomercial, right? Um, and I guess, but then uh, coming something else afterwards with the Illuminati and whatever. Yep. Um, the but, handy video is a is a TV commercial, also. It's oh yes, exactly. Yep. So that's something. <laughs> Can I say something that I think is going to be controversial? Partly for the sake of its being controversial, but partly because I actually had this reaction. I, I was a little bored with this Weird Al album when I listened to the whole thing on a long drive in the car this week. Right. Mm-hmm. And I've seen all the I've seen all the the videos and and the videos are batting like I don't know. They're batting like three thirty three for me or something like that. That's the, Hall of Fame numbers right there. <laughs> I guess so. Um, Depends on whether you're playing baseball or tennis. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like one th- one thing that that Pete has said that's been a, an interesting sort of watchword for me. And you said it about Anchorman uh, was Anchorman is a is a farce uh, pretending to be a satire. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, a farce claiming to be a satire. And that's I mean, that's an interesting thing. Right. And I think that that like Weird Al is is farce claiming to be satire a little bit. I mean, I guess th- I guess they're called parody songs, which just means that like, oh, they're very silly. Where is the? But there's no they don't really have a lot of teeth. Right. Like the the T-Pain satire of of Royals. You know, I don't know, had some teeth, right? Like the the one called White Girls that that made its way around YouTube, right? Had some, uh, I don't know, had some teeth socially, and just the the um, the 
I guess I believe too much in the conspiracy. To, oh, to think to, it's, you don't think it's funny to see the, the, to see the conspiracy mocked, right? Like, and this is one reason why I liked Angry White Boy Polka so much, which was the the polka on Poodle Hat that. Um, you know, was like System of a Down and the White Stripes and yeah. um, Limp Bizkit and Kid Rock and Eminem. Uh, like, I, th- this is why I liked it so much um, because it it really I don't know it it really gave the lie to a lot of the to a lot of the self important. Um, seriousness of you know of a lot of that of a lot of that music and kind of by making it ridiculous uh sort of i don't know did did some good subversive work right like they're they're subversive there's the word there's the word i've been wanting to get on right like there's not there isn't subversion really i mean and i suppose that that there isn't it's kind of mocked it's sort of called in it's called in for the the mockery but like well first world problems okay interesting song but i kind of wanted to go a step further and kind of uh Wanted to go a step further and and rather than just calling out these things, like make some sort of claim uh, about them. Um, can I jump in and disagree with you about the Illuminati thing? Because I think I think there's well, here, here, here's my conspiracy theory. I think there's more to it than just mocking uh, the people who put on the tinfoil hats. Um, specifically, the part where he's saying there's someone or there's always someone watching you, and he looks right into the the camera of the infomercial. So, um, and then also in the background talking about the moon landing being uh, taped, you know, on a set. I think he um, is continually struggling with this idea of, uh, you know, being watched as sort of, you know, as a musical act. And he wants to be watched. He wants, uh, because it's a commercial thing, right? He needs to make the money for uh, the music company by being viewed on YouTube or whatever. Um, So I think that's part of the reason why his songs may uh, not have teeth on this album is because he keeps like struggling. Like there's this tension where he wants you to watch him, but he's also making fun of the fact that you want to watch him or he's on, um, in word crimes, for example, like he's mocking people who use uh, bad grammar or hashtags on the internet, but then he also uses a hashtag. So, I, yeah, I guess he can't uh, come come up with one particular point of view in any of the songs, really, uh, because I don't think he knows what he thinks. He's just sort of confused a little bit in, in an interesting way, I think. I think I like my favorite song. I, I do think about half the songs in this album are just kind of throwaways. I, I agree with Matt in the sense that a bunch of having, especially like you know the the first world problem song is like I don't care. I actually think probably the best overall song is probably the sports song because uh-huh. that one you could actually play like we're great and you suck. We're really great and you really suck or whatever it is. Like you could play that at a, at a sporting event. It would be great. It would be excellent. I think it, it served. It's it's a perfect song for its genre um but most of the songs on this album are like eh you can take them or leave them um there's a couple i think that are good um i really like handy 
And and I've listened to all these songs. I greeted this album, by the way, which is utter glee and just total joy. And I've, I loved every bit of it. I went through with my girlfriend and showed her all the videos that were out yesterday, right? And just laughing at each and every one. I love them. I love the tacky one. I think my, fa- my favorite one is Handy. And I think um, to the extent that there is any satire in it, there's it is it is it is farce first and foremost, right? Um, but it, it's it's also there's a physical farce. There's the physicality of Weird Al. There's Weird Al putting his sort of gangly, like somewhat unattractive body out there to be viewed by everybody, and in that sense, sort of demanding that everyone look at this person who is so unrock, un unstarlike, is itself somewhat of a political act. It's like, oh, you all have to look at me now, and you thought you were going to be looking at a pretty lady, you know? Um, and this idea, I'm a middle-aged handyman dancing around with my pelvis sticking out. In that sense, there is sort of a, a mockery of this. Um, there's there's a little bit of the kind of pulling back of the curtain that uh, that kind of shrouds absurd things in the context of kind of showy attractiveness, right? Uh, and this idea that the handyman can be so demonstrable about how good he is at everything, the same way that this woman in the song, you know, Enrique Iglesias, can be so good. At Iggy Iglesias, sorry, it's Iggy, it's Enrique Iggy Iglesias. I don't even know what it is, but that she could be so good at trashing hotel rooms and doing all the stuff that she does. Uh, I do think that there's a there's a the sort of the way that it sort of smears over the the structure of the song, right? I think that there's something there's a little bit of something there, but it's also kind of democratizing. Uh, it's a little bit democratizing. It's a little bit saying like, hey, you know the regular experiences that normal people have that aren't like your song. Uh, like we can act like that too and see how much artifice it is. Now, well, I mean, yeah. So jump in here. Speaking of artifice, like you know, the song itself, I think is highly aware of its own artifice, right? Especially if you look at the music video, which is a um, which is a parody of Clueless, right? Of clue, uh, handy is a parody of clue. Uh, uh, no, uh, fancy. Uh, yeah, the fancy, fancy video fancy. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's I, like, oh look at me, I'm so fancy. I'm, I'm I'm doing the air quotes there in case you couldn't hear them. Oh yeah. So you, so the idea is that the song that's 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 actually I'm actually astounded that I haven't thought of it that way because I I just sort of I've been for whatever reason just sort of taking it on its sort of stupid face value. No, well, I mean, also, I, th- I I think the song is not. I I wouldn't ascribe those. I think the video is is maybe a little more clever than the song is. Though you know I got to say I I like the song. I think the song I I like the lyric writing of the song. I it it raises a. I guess cross-cultural appropriation issues, but I think Iggy Azalea has gotten tarred with that, you know, to a greater extent than Chromio, say, because she's a woman and is uh, an easier target, I guess. But like, uh, but but I I I think that Fancy is very sincere. I I think the video is maybe the the the, the more self-aware um, work. Um, can I jump in and raise the question of uh, fashion? Because when you were talking about Handy Pete, all I can think about was his jean vest that he was wearing because he's so glorious. And I had actually mentioned a while back that I wish that I was one of those people who had a life that justified having a sax solo in the background. And I thought the way to do that would be to wear a jean vest all the time. So when I saw that, I was just I was very, very happy. But the, all the fashion choices in all these videos was just 
uh, so fascinating. Um, and like, was he mocking the fashion choices that you know rock stars or pop stars use, or was he mocking himself for wearing those clothes? Like, I was thinking um, in tacky, um, the clothes. Uh, you know, you have seventies tacky clothes, eighties tacky neon, nineties uh, tie dye, all of that stuff, and then you have like these at the beginning, uh, like this hipster fashion. I couldn't tell it was supposed to be like more hipster like uh uh earlier hipsterdom or like norm core slash thrift shop and like there seems to be so much there and i'm not exactly sure what he's saying obviously he's saying it's tacky but i don't know in the other videos people are wearing those things too is he mocking them i don't know is he mocking us i i can't tell what these clothes uh but find them fascinating i think he's celebrating his own tackiness i mean yeah, like I, in this aesthetic i saw a lot of what i most what i associated with weird al from uh when i was first aware of him in the late 80s and early 90s well also i mean a lot of the videos i think i mean i couldn't really tell because i'm not this type of person but i think he used a lot of green screen in these videos um and I think that really highlights the artificiality. And green screen is, like, so tacky as well, but in this, like, wonderfully, uh, maybe not childish way, but, I don't know, like, fun in... And, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's very Weird Al. So I like that he did that as well. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, it's great. It's um, and also just I think just to clarify, the model for this is Weird Al is selling the album. Weird Al uh, enlisted a bunch of different internet production companies, such as Funny or Die, College Humor, Nerdist, to produce the videos for him. The videos then, I believe, earn their own viewership traffic, and the ad revenue there, I believe, kicks back to the sponsors of the videos, so like Funny or Die or whatever. And the goal for Weird Al is to sell copies of the album. So it's an interesting kind of financing model for that. Um, I just wanted to set that up. Yeah, there. he we got free. Vi- I mean, he got free videos, or he got, yeah, he got um, videos. Yeah, produced produced for free, and these he brought his brand, and also to a certain to a certain extent, the he brought the scale of the project, right? Like, yeah. uh, so that each of these, so that they could kind of multiply their their each individual marketing effort, because there would be eight different entities doing this concurrently um and you know the, it would sort of feed it would sort of feedback feedback on itself but yeah i mean it was an interesting right like rather than the record company funding the video in order to to sell albums these uh you know these outlets which need viewership right uh and traffic they need they need content um to which I say, uh, you know, our future overlords who are at Nerdist or Funny or Die, uh, overthinking it can make great content for you. We've made we've made parody videos. I mean, maybe let's wrap wrap up the Weird Al bit with this. Like, uh, what 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 does Weird Al have that we don't have, guys and and lady? Uh, curls an, that I can't achieve on my own. An accordion and an ability to play it. Although, yeah, Matt, just, <laughs> do you play the accordion? Have I, you have, I have, in fact, played the accordion in public. No. Well, there you go, right? I mean, like, we're, we're there. But I, I have nothing approaching Weird Al's, uh, you know, main, his, um, uh, I was looking, chestnut, his chestnut main. I think, I think Weird Al just has this 
incredibly, unbelievably profound sense of just courtesy and generosity toward the world. Um, and he's just so nice. He's just, I mean, he's, he's like making fun of people, but he's so nice and he's so endearing and he just makes weak people feel so good. You know, like if you're feeling down and I mean, I think that's why a lot of people connect with Weird Al because he's there for you at the, at the low times when there's like nothing else to, 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 to smile at. And then there's some la 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 lasagna and like, all right, great. Awesome. Let's let's, uh maybe there's a little beam of sunlight coming in through through the uh the darkness. Pete, I think what you're saying is that when there was only one set of footprints, that was when Weird Al was carrying all (laughs) (laughs) I was expecting you to make the footprints joke, but you left a footprint wide hole that that I came in to fill. I would do anything for Weird Al, but I won't do that. (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) Speaking speaking of a being a beam of light, a, a beam of sunlight coming into a dark hole. Snowpiercer. <laughs> Spe- speaking of the future of the recording industry, speaking of a barren wasteland in which no life exists, uh, Snowpiercer. I don't know about you guys. I saw this movie on VOD, on uh, Amazon Video On Demand via the, the Roku box. Did, did it's you the future. Two... Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. I was, I was encased in my own little train uh, watching, this, watching this film. Um, did you guys go to a theater? I did. Yes. Not only did I go to a theater, I went to an, uh, an historical theater uh, here in beautiful Somerville, Massachusetts, the Somerville Theater, which is not owned by a large conglomerate, but has, still has kind of a stage and, and curtains and all sorts of nice stuff. Although we were in the basement in one of the newer, newfangled theater things. It wasn't the big, the big theater for this one. It, oh, I see. That's funny. The, like the digital projection ones or whatever in the basement. Uh, I think so. Yeah, that's probably what it is. Uh, uh, well, I I um, I looked on IMDb when this uh, when I, actually while I was watching this movie because no one could stop me from using my phone because I was in the comfort of my living room. Ha ha! Take that. Uh, AMC. Tilda Swinton. Yeah, <laughs> silence is golden. Um, yes, it uh, it this film stars. Uh, uh, overthinking it muse Tilda Swinton. Um, I was looking at the comments on IMDb about this, this film and a lot of them were very appreciative and, and I was very appreciative of this film. So I, I was glad to see those, but like more than half were, man, there are so many plot holes and logical problems with this. <laughs> uh, I, I went to the movie with, uh, three friends and, um, I, and, and one of my other friends, Went, uh, left and we were like oh my god I love this movie and uh, the other two guys really really didn't like it and they were also listing all the potholes they're like it's this is so ridiculous I didn't believe it and like if you didn't buy into the premise at the beginning like you hear the summary it's like this is a dystopia on a train if you don't laugh at that and say yes I accept this with all of my heart like, don't go into the movie. Right. It's a, it's a parable or a fairy tale or a, you know, yeah. it's, it, that is to say it's up to other things other than like rigorous internal consistency and, you know, speculative, like speculative accuracy. Right. Like, I mean, it's, it's for, not I, I, cu- I couldn't help but point out things that were implausible about it, but it didn't really diminish my enjoyment of the movie that much. I, I, I felt like I saw it with my girlfriend and I felt like she thought I didn't like it because 
because I kept pointing things out uh, like after the movie was over. But it's like, no, no, no. I, I, I almost would rather not. I would rather not point out the things that are wrong with it, even though what I described it as like a wonderful movie for people who love movies and a terrible movie for train engineers, because um, it's like they just wouldn't be able to tolerate it. But uh, but yeah, no, it's uh, it's really nice, and I I mean we could point out all sorts of stuff about how difficult it would be to keep an entire tank of live fish on a train, but uh, like you know we don't have to do that. It's not important. Uh, it's it's a fant- it's a fantasy, and it's but very it's not much realistic. Fantasy. <laughs> Realism is the most important thing in all movies, in all literature, in fact. That said, why is no one maintaining the tracks on... No, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, man. I, I, I kind of want to... And this will be the last I say about it before we talk about the actual movie. I kind of want to do a standalone podcast where we bring in an engineer who works on, like, on like train systems just to go through every single thing in Snowpiercer that is obviously and flagrantly impossible that's going on with this thing. Um, because it's like, it, if nothing else, it does certainly show that the movie makers do not expect the average movie-going person to have any personal or practical experience with the operations of trains. Right? Like, it's like, it sort of assumes that that's not something that you care about very much, which I think is a reasonable assumption for most people. Right? Like, most people don't work on trains you know, so chill out, um, literally. Chill out. Chill out uh, from the high atmosphere. Well, indeed. but here's the thing, though. They called it Snowpiercer, but through uh, throughout the movie, a couple of times, it pierced through ice. So Not snow. There was no actual snow being pierced. All right, so spoiler alert for Snowpiercer. Uh, at this and for point. Unstoppable by Denzel Washington. No. <laughs> it's, I mean, in what sense is Unstoppable by Denzel Washington? <laughs> In all senses. <laughs> it went by him when he was standing by the tracks. Anyway, continue. Yeah. Um, we, we totally missed the mind control cars, right? Where like uh, where the people from the tail section of the train are made into uh, are made into Snowpiercer loving zombies are made into Ed Harris servants like the violinist and the, the zombie child <laughs> who climbs into the machine near the end of the movie. Like uh, you know, nowhere do we see the, the mind control thing. Unless it's unless it's at the dentist uh, in the Victorian <laughs> rail car dentist yeah. chair uh, that we see the mind we don't need to see the mind control thing because the mind control mechanism is Confucianism right <laughs> or like well actually I, Shana you were really excited to 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 talk about this movie I'm curious because I know I know you have a lot of interesting thoughts about kind of dialogues and and dialectics in in cultural history I'm curious to hear what what you think about this movie before I play a bunch of crud down that everyone else has to wade through (laughs) (laughs) i mean uh there's so many things there's so many ways into this movie um well the the friends i was with who did not like it um their other complaint was that it was weird um and i guess it was in the sense of um one of them described it i thought it was a funny way of putting it um a korean director trying to make an american blockbuster and he was using that um as a negative and i was like that's awesome yes do that um it just all these like weird little moments like uh them putting uh the their knives into the fish like all these weird things happening um but what i uh what i'd said in an email to you guys uh earlier was that i kept wanting to compare it to slaughterhouse five because our uh book club is starting this week um about slaughterhouse five so i've read it and i think they're sort of uh playing in the same uh room like literary playroom um in that you have uh 
something going around in circles, right? And in Slaughterhouse-Five, it's this guy's life, and he keeps going around in circles. Nothing really changes. And then in this movie, you have a train going on a track. And um, as this uh, guy, Curtis, pushes forward, he learns from Ed Harris at the end that, you know, nothing really changes. This is the way society is. There's no way out. Um, you know, you can change little things here and there, but, you know, this this train is on a track. And I guess it's sort of like... Uh, they're both meta-literary in a sense, um, like Snowpiercer is sort of, I mean, mocking, maybe not mocking, but it's commenting upon, I guess, action movies that sort of go in a straight line towards a climax and a bunch of, you know, second car- secondary characters die because that's what they're there to do. Like, they're sort of, like, one-dimensional and they get killed off. Um, and then you just progress to this big uh, action sequence at the end. Um, you know, it's it's on a track. And we are in the theater, in the dark, sort of moving forward and, there's like a screen in front of us, like the front window of a train almost. We're going through this tunnel of moviedom. Um, much in the same way, you know, Slaughterhouse-Five is about, uh, but we can talk about this more on that podcast, but about uh, sort of uh, the act of reading and if, uh, you know, like a book is something that doesn't change um, because it's in a solid form, you know, that we can read. But on the other hand, as we read it, we change. So... I think they're very similar in the sense of they're both kind of like trains. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> awesome. Uh, I, th- I thought I thought that. Uh, I mean, I haven't read Slaughterhouse Five, and I'm I'm not doing the book club, uh, but everyone else should. This is like because I just I was doing the 24 real time recaps, and I need to step back for a little bit and let some other people uh, do the current exciting awesome project. So everybody should do the book club. So just because I'm not doing it, that's not uh, a reason not to do it. But um, but I've, so I I can't see it in the framework of Slaughterhouse Five. But I was interested in the way that it subverts action movies by having the heroes' actions be. Pretty. I'm not going to say that they're irrelevant, but like the hero's quest is ultimately frustrated, uh, and ultimately does not come to pass, and is ultimately rendered meaningless, right? Because the hero's quest is to get to the front of the train so that he can displace uh, Winston, right? Is his name? Um, and Wilford. Uh, or is it Wilford, and so he can displace Winston, the Black Ghostbuster. No, so he can he can displace <laughs> Wilford because Wilford has been unjustly ruling over and oppressing him and his people, and he can put Gilliam in charge or Gilliam's ideology in charge, uh, Gilliam's idea of sort of generosity of the self to everyone over Wilford's idea of hierarchy and enforcement, right? Um, and then it's ultimately – and then the question is, do you believe Wilford when he's talking? Do you think that Gilliam really is in league with Wilford? He certainly is in league with him to some degree, right, because the phone does go to his room. I don't think we can guess that, Wil- that Gilliam is totally lying uh, or that, to- that Gilliam is was totally lying to Wilford or whatever. That's all false. But Gilliam the – one, the one interesting thing about the movie that, that I think kind of puts – Curtis's quest into perspective is Gilliam telling Curtis that when Curtis gets to Wilford's room, he wants uh, Curtis to kill Wilford before Wilford has a chance to talk, right? And this is in the event that Curtis eventually reaches, reaches Wilford's room. Uh, why would he want to do this? 
right? It's such a Silence of the Lambs, like where he's like, "Don't let Hannibal Lecter talk to you." Well, that, and that's what course, you think it is, but yeah. yeah, but it's not. It's not. It's, it's not it, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not that at all. You think it's oh, Wilford has like mind control powers, or Wilford is just like so warped as an individual that you don't want to come in contact with him. But it's really what that Wilford would reveal to Curtis that Gilliam has been in league with him the whole time, and maybe Gilliam has an idea of himself that is separate from the truth he doesn't want to acknowledge of his idea of himself with Wilford, right? And he wants Curtis to think of him, continue to think of him as he has been to him, rather than as he has been sort of to the larger train, right? And in that sense, well, maybe Gilliam has kind of been playing the other side. Uh, maybe there is kind of a meaningful revolution, but maybe there isn't. Uh, I don't know. I, th- I saw the whole thing as very much about China, and, and I felt like – I wonder whether there was an original ending that didn't get signed off on by the Chinese government. I get very paranoid about the Chinese government's influence on movies because they have such influence on movies. But, um, but the, ending, uh, the ending dialogue – the ending monologue really from Wilford to Curtis to me felt like a speech from Confucius to Mao, sort of giving <laughs> Mao control of China. Right, which is like this is like Confucius saying like this is the way the hierarchy of everything here has worked. This is why this train that continues to progress through the environment, the train is Earth. The inhabitants are the human race, right? And this is how it works. He literally says that um, in the movie, right? right? And and C four is the opium of the people of the masses. <laughs> Well, then the idea – then it's like I am going to hand control over the people to you, the revolutionary, because as the revolutionary, you've created this social energy. You've created this fear and pain, all these emotions that are part of what needs to happen to maintain this balance with humanity. And I, as Confucius, like approve of you as Mao overthrowing the old order and leading the new order into the future, right? Can um, I throw a wrench into your engine? Yeah, go for it. Pistons – I don't know how engines work. Um it's a Korean movie, though, not a Chinese movie. Yeah, so. but certainly they're, they're influenced by... Right, right, they, sure. ha- they have to pass the Chinese censors to enter the Chinese market, right? Well, and- the, other, the other thing is... Right, yeah, that's that's what I was going to say. And the other thing is that, like... Uh, the other thing with Shane is that, like, very often there will be, like, a Chinese cut of a, you know, of a film, right? So- well, there was supposed to be an American cut. You know, the whole controversy that happened um, where, what's his name, uh, Wein- Harvey Weinstein wanted to cut out 20 minutes and add um, some monologues, like an opening and closing monologue, and uh, the director said, absolutely not, I won't. So the wide release was turned into an art house release, and, like, I don't know, two theaters in New York, for example. And then it got a wider release afterwards, but it was a pretty interesting situation. Um, but it seems to, I mean, this seems to me like this, uh, this is the film that Edge of Tomorrow should have been, right? Or like this is the release strategy that Edge of Tomorrow should have employed, right? Because like, all the, the things about Edge of Tomorrow that were interesting were not the things that made it a blockbuster, right? Like... Uh, like the the um, all the CGI, you know, who cared about those those octopus tentacle aliens? Uh, no one, not me, right? Like the the interesting thing was like the small uh, indie drama character study in in that, and th- this, you know, um, you got some action scenes, uh, but. Um, uh, but you really got to focus in on the the indie drama. But like, I don't know the the idea that it was done 
the idea that it was a Korean director trying to make an American blockbuster, blockbuster. Oh no, I don't actually like, agree with that. But I, I thought yeah, it was I think an that that statement. assessment. I think your friend's assessment, with respect to your friend, I think your friend's assessment is wrong. Right? Like one, the violence is filmed with such sadness, right, and not a sense of of uh, you know, not a triumphal quality uh, that I fully expect to see from the Expendables three a little <laughs> later on in the summer, where it's like yeah explosion <laughs> punch the guy in the face <laughs> right like the the sort of the moral weight of punching the guy in the face is sort of never never <laughs> far and the 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 like the aesthetic moves that are um, that are fetishizing in in American cinema, and I'm thinking like of slow motion uh, or of certain kinds of framing, um, are distancing in in this movie. And there there are always, I mean, there are a couple of there are always sort of like there are sort of fades. There are like crossfades rather than uh, quick cuts. Um, Employed in a lot of ways in this movie that that I thought were were really interesting and sort of situated the movie uh, within a non-American cinema. And I, I gotta say, I don't know a ton about about Korean cinema, um, but this was pretty characteristic of Korean cinema, from what I've learned from Blinky, from having to see those movies that he showed us. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that uh, sort of to jump off something that you said earlier, Pete, um, that. Uh, this wasn't a movie ultimately about an American guy like this Curtis uh, who is sort of supposed to – I mean he's played by Captain America, right? Right. Um, um, but then ultimately his hero's quest is you know, irrelevant. But um, the guy whose name I don't remember, the Korean guy and his and daughter, yes, they're the heroes. So it's yes. like – we have this American action movie, and then it's like, no, actually, this was a Korean action movie with Korean heroes in it. And we were, you know, uh, pretending that it was American to bring it into the U.S., but, you know, we're operating within a different international genre. Um, so I, I like that a lot. Um, and then also I was thinking just to bring it back to an earlier conversation, um, Pete, when you were talking about Gilliam, I, I wonder what you think about the fact that his name was Gilliam and I think is a reference to Terry Gilliam and specifically something like Brazil, um, where you have characters who are trying to get out of this dystopian society, but, uh, you know, not to spoil it, but, uh, can't and then are sort of within their own heads like everything is within your own mind and you can't escape it i i don't know if that really uh changes our reading of the movie but i think it is a fascinating choice to call him that certainly a, a revolutionary with like umbrellas for arms is something that terry gilliam <laughs> would come up with right like or whatever it is he has going on um but but to, to talk about it from talk about minsu for a second so revise so thinking about what we were saying what i was saying before about this so okay so ed harris the thing that the thing that really connects Ed Harris with Confucius for me is his robe. Like he wears this silk robe, right? And then Curtis is wearing this like tough kind of industrial dark outfit and has the thick kind of like worker's beard, right? So Curtis very much looks like a worker and Ed Harris is dressed like an Eastern philosopher, right? And so if you consider it as the story of Minsu, um, right? Like the, the security expert, it is interesting to think of it 
as kind of a, 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 the story of Korea being like a for sort of tiny, you know, small and kind of neglected or abused by the people around it, locked up in prison in the train for a long time, kind of subsumed by the larger powers around it. And makes kind good of, technology. You, yeah. And uses technology to find a way, a, a new way, like an independent way out. Right. Uh, and indicts both this idea of the revolution, which I identify with socialism, but you could just as easily identify with kind of like democratic revolution all the same, right? This, this, uh, the idea of like the, the masses are rising up against the elite and, it, you know, in the world of that, like, you know, what does the Korean do? Like the Korean, you know, it understands chemistry and the Korean like enjoys cigarettes and like, you know, kind of like appreciates the desperateness of the situation and then gets to hang out with a polar bear. Um, but it is definitely. Can we talk notable. about the polar bear? Oh yeah, please, please do that because that is that is quite an ending uh, to Lots end right before really the polar bear eats like the children. It. Oh, people didn't like the polar bear. Wait, what well, do you think the polar bear does right internet. after? Oh yeah, they didn't. Okay, oh well, yeah, because everyone's like, oh yeah, the polar bear is just going to eat them. But um, <laughs> I thought I, I really liked that moment because. First of all, it was like, oh, uh, this movie begins with global warming, right? And then it ends with the polar bear saying, like, screw you, we survived, we're the winners. Um, right. <laughs> so, I mean, because so much, uh, one of the, like, dramatic stories that's always told, one of the narrativ- narrativizations of global warming is the disappearance of the habitat of polar bears, right? right? Um, right. But also, I, um, you know, uh, polar bear... That's a good sign that uh, the polar bear is there because it's like the apex predator. You can't just have polar bears there. There has to be something for the polar bear to eat and there has to be, you know, plants for those animals to eat. So this is actually a pretty hopeful ending. Now the question, uh, you know, will humanity survive? Uh, looks not so good, but at least, um, you know, there is something outside the train, yeah. you know, the, the dystopia in, in the train is not the only thing. Like they say, the train is the world. No, it's not. There is a world out there that is, you know, past all these human concerns that are a bunch of nonsense and, you know, lead to a bunch of people being killed. Um, you know, there is hope. But for other species, maybe. Yeah, and if you if you pay close attention to the polar bear, you realize that it is a computer generated animated polar bear. Oh, sure. Yeah, and we know that the natural foodstuff of computer generated animated polar bears is Coca Cola, right? So that means there has to be Coca Cola in the environment, which means that you probably have humanity out there somewhere surviving and manufacturing Coca Cola. But um, but it is interesting to, to think what is the Snowpiercer? Is the Snowpiercer the train that is cutting? through the ice right and sort of providing this sort of war this needle of warmth that humanity kind of dances on or is or it is- the piercing blue eyes of ed harris shown in close-up Aww. several times in this <laughs> film with their intensity and their power piercing through the snow that is caked around your heart eyes of god yeah clearly clearly or is it the guy who stuck the is it the white guy who got speared Right. <laughs> no, it's um or is it the little children that leave the train and go out into the snow? Right? And like pierce the barrier between the uh where the snow is on the outside. If if the snow does not represent sort of extinction, as which is a word that's used a lot in this movie, extinct, extinct, and things that were said to be extinct are revealed to not be extinct, like several times during the movie. Uh is it not extinction, but is it instead kind of uh sort of social I don't want to say, um, oh gosh, just like there's sort of an unknown and unknowable social or like departure from the social order into like a new space, 
you know, not a sort of not a, it's not like a uh, a, a Shangri La. It's not like we're going to get to the promised land. It's definitely not that kind of journey. But there's something out there that's very inhospitable, but is different from what we have within, and that's the snow that we're seeking to pierce in this movie. Perhaps, perhaps. Or maybe they just like it's just is it is it are they listening to Informer in the, can can we can we just talk about can we just can we just say <laughs> one thing can we just say one thing about like okay I'm gonna design the train that's gonna carry all of humanity in the front of the train I'm gonna put the perpetual motion machine and the room of God which will include God his hibachi and his secretary right next uh-huh. to that I'm and gonna put the forsaken put, child and the forsaken child and I'm gonna have a cool bridge okay so far so good doing great next step crack house it's just gonna be a flop house it's gonna be a bunch of, of chairs i'm not gonna have chairs they're just gonna be dug out of a bunch of rocks and all the drug addicts are gonna live there and they're just gonna hang out and then it's a gay club it's just a huge gay club on the train on the train to god um i don't know it is it is interesting to think that this is basically like a party bus is that because that's what the train is right it's like when you're walking down the street and like the bus goes by and it's all the people listening to like ah I'm so fancy and the lights are going and they're all getting drunk inside the bus. Like that was the original purpose of this train, right? And I'm was in to the be back like just being just hating everything. Oh just man. Just wanting to get to the front and just murder everyone. Basically, yes. This is like a, this is totally like yeah, a limited fantasy. You want like uh, like the like the young girl, the um, teenage daughter of the door opener, right? Uh, she wants a, a cup of ace, cup of goose, cup of Chris, high heels, <laughs> yep. something worth half a ticket on her wrist. Uh, the um, yeah, I mean, it's I I sort of saw it as sort of increasing alienation from the body, right? Mm-hmm. Like or from labor. I guess from the body and the body's capacity to work, right? Like you get up, you get up, uh, and you, a little farther, and then there's like the fighters um, who aren't, you know, super tail-like, but who are still sort of bodily. And then you get up to like the arts and the sciences and medicine and the the you know Victorian library car, uh, and then up further is like the sauna uh, where you're having a Bottle, you're having sort of a physical experience, but you're not really, uh, you're not really making anything. You know, you're not really laboring. Um, and then up to the to the club, and then up to the to the uh, crack den where the opium den where you're having the uh, the kind of out of body experience, right? And then mm-hmm. up to up to the mind at the front. I saw it as I mean, as a sort of allegorized person. Or a sort of allegorized continuum of of you know relationship to work across the uh, across the length of the train, but the the idea i mean i don 't know the idea of the engine was sort of was sort of interesting to me right because like pe- people need an engine also right to to sort of do work to uh, to achieve to have ambition to you know make arts and sciences or to make you know the fruits of labor um, right and and the view the view of human nature which i 'm not sure if the film endorsed or whether it was just Ed Harris who endorsed this. Um, was the the sort of churning, you know, mob scene uh, with like um, uh, with this sort of, with this sort of Mister Jonathan style Terminator uh, character uh, at the head of it, and then the the sort of churning churning mob coming out of the crack den and swinging their uh, you know I don't know swinging their heavy objects around um, and. Uh, 
right this was the this was the sort of engine this was the sort of perpetual motion of humanity is in this uh kind of self annihilating uh unstoppable churn um right that 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 you need the you need the the cold um rationality of ed harris and his hibachi uh to understand to sort of understand the people as a means right um Speak, speaking of Immanuel Kant from earlier, right? Like to understand the people as a means, as units, uh, not as as individually perfectible ends uh, in themselves. Um, so the the uh, so the the you know the train, in other words, uh, was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And it uh, though it actually was pretty long. Once we finally got some external shots of the whole uh, of the whole train. Um, and it right it seemed it seemed to be this this essentially conservative view of human nature uh and and the view of people as this sort of the war of uh, the war of all against all and and kind of an internal war of of all against all uh where where people are kind of restless and unsatisfied and sort of churning and and sort of uh um uh, need to be kept, need to be almost restrained and need to be kind of, uh, uh, kept locked by these gates in their, in their place or else there would, or else the, the sort of the messiness of human nature would not have time, right? Human nature wouldn't have time and, and, um, natural selection wouldn't have time to work because that, that imposes order over an evolutionary time scale. but we need to, you know, I don't know, save everybody now. Um, I don't know. Was there anything in there that that? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that struck me is is are these circumstances is are these circumstances of everybody? Ed Harris's view of people is conveniently reinforced by the hate behavior of people within the system that Ed Harris keeps in place. Sure. Right. So the question is, the people in the tale are desperate and they get violent and they're angry, but they're made that way because they're treated so poorly. Right. Uh, and there's this one of there's this big question hanging over the whole movie of like, why are you being such jerks? Right? Like, like there's no necessary reason for I mean, of course, there's Ed Harris's philosophy that he thoroughly explains to you about why he thinks it's necessary for there to be lower classes. But there's this huge question of like, why is everybody being so terrible to everybody else? Like everything that's like you. You can't – yes, the, the, the oppressed people are not going to sit there and do nothing, right? And yes, it might be better for the train, says Tilda Swinton, if they were simply to go back. But you've treated them so poorly. How can you not expect them to try to do something? And then, of course, Ed Harris reveals that, no, we do expect them to do something. It's part of the plan and all that other stuff. But it's like um, the people act that way because of how they are treated. Uh, I, I mean that's, that's, that's the side I come down on is that like a lot of the behavior on the train is the product of nurture rather than nature. And thinking about it now as sort of Shana opened up to me by suggesting the Koreanness of it uh, and thinking then this is about piercing the snow. This is about the Korean, the Korean safe, uh, safe breaker or gate breaker or what have you getting his daughter out into the wilderness, right? Like there, that there is a way for humanity to live where we don't act like this, uh, but it has to involve sort of confronting the harsh realities of survival without the sort of uh, at least intellectually comforting presence of an overlord, um, which is kind of, you know, you, I guess, you know, unrealistic or utopian or whatever, but I guess it's more of a personal journey. It's sort of notable that that there is no society that can emerge into this. There's like an Adam and Eve 
right? Although, gosh, are we expected that the little kid and the Asian girl, are they going to... I was about to say, like, is she going to be after... I, I figured she, her age is given as 17, so it's, you know, she's still going to be in, in childbearing years when, when the, <laughs> the boy who is less than five, uh, you know, arrives at sexual maturity, but, but yeah. still... We have, to, we have to hope, we have to believe that at least a bunch of the other people on the train survived. The crash. Yeah, but they don't have they don't have um, fur coats. They don't have fur coats from the, <laughs> you know. From They'll the, make coats from the out of train. the bodies of other people. Like uh, you know, it smells worse on the inside, but it keeps you warm. You know, <laughs> they're gonna cut open the manta ray and sleep inside <laughs> the manta ray. Is that what it is? Well, there's also. I mean, you could imagine them huddling around the reactor for warmth. Right? Like, is that, did it stop working? I guess it did it blow up. Did the, re- the reactor didn't blow up, right? It was the bomb that blew up. So, and the little kid is still inside the reactor, right? So, yeah, um, as long as that kid is inside the reactor. I don't know. Was the reactor the, the penultimate car or was it the ultimate car? I mean, the first, the first car or the second car, I guess. I think of it as the end because we started from the back, but, but I guess it's There the was beginning. a reactor module. There was like a core that was in the very, very front, which was what sort of overwhelmed uh, Curtis, right? And he couldn't stand to like stand within its confines, right? right. He was crushed by, the, by its immensity. And then there was a pod that came out and the other little kid got into the pod in this sort of like right and he had been brainwashed where was the brainwashing room where was (laughs) where was the car where this is a huge plot hole and logical problem with the film right we also had a psychic this the daughter was psychic somehow so there is some sort of the chinese government was everyone in this movie Clearly, that makes sense. That's the only thing that makes sense. But like, also, whatever's Kurt- impossible, whatever's improbable, however unlikely, must be the truth. Sorry, go ahead, Shana. No, if, Pete. What I wanted to say was, um, Curtis, uh, when he was in the front of the train, he wasn't just overwhelmed by the immensity of, of the uh, the core. It was also that Ed Harris was saying, "You've never been alone, you know, since you've been yeah. on this train," and it, it was him. You know, uh, listening to himself think, being an individual for like the first time in many, many, many years. And I, the question is, was he crying because it was like wonderful? No, it was, uh, it was crying. He was crying because he couldn't deal with being the individual. He really is part of this uh, community, even though the whole movie he was like, I don't want to be the leader. But that's, that's his function in this movie. He is the leader of the, the rebels. And without the rebels, what, what is he? He's got nothing. All he has is like his memories of eating babies, which uh, was a bad thing, I think. It's kind of, yeah, but he, he redeemed himself when he got his arm chopped off, right? in the end by the uh yeah by the machine um i mean and I, then blew up <laughs> I, I sort of thought that was the that was the point of that yeah he yeah. he sort of goes from seeing himself as a member of a class right to to seeing himself as as an individual to seeing himself as sort of broadly responsible for for humanity and sort of saving the you know responsible for like the next generation and kind of saving the saving the child rather than viewing the 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 uh, children as a as yeah. a resource. It, he, as, it, as yeah, it's, it starts as a Star Trek two movie, but by the end it's a Star Trek three movie, huh. where the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many, right? Because <laughs> um, it starts out with the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few. Yeah, I, I thought that was going to be like it starts as an awesome movie like Star Trek two, and ends as kind of a meh movie like Star Trek. No, 3. no, I like Star. <laughs> no, Star Trek three is not that good. No, it's not that great. <laughs> 
<laughs> or they, don't they change, um, what's her name, like the Kirstie Alley character to a different actress in the third one? Yes. Or is that it's, a different it's one? It's Kim Cattrall, right? Yeah, yeah, so is she, is she in the la- No, she's in the later one. I, she's in the later one. I don't know. As uh, as Lieutenant Savick, oh, right? Yeah, yeah Savick, correct. Uh, who is? Uh, yeah, um, but the, it is, the point is that at, when he sees himself as an individual, because we t- uh, we've talked about it a lot as sort of political philosophy, which sees people collectively, and then when you think about an individual person and the sort of burden of being an individual person, the reality of being an individual person, political philosophies are somewhat inadequate to describing those circumstances, um, right? Like there's a disconnect between how the systems operate, and you can't, you know, what is it like to be one person, right? It's a totally different question from what is it like to run a society. Um, and it's interesting that we get to that place, and then yeah. it's like, well, if you're in the wilderness, go ahead. It's sort of like, what is the point of uh, what is the point of running a society, right? Like, like is the society is the fact that it's going and and it it works at a certain level is that an end in itself, right? Like, like Ed Harris wants the you know Ed Harris wants the the thing to just continue because it's it's running, right? Yeah. Um, there isn't really there isn't a huge normative claim made for made for the idea of quote-unquote balance or quote-unquote, um, uh, you know, everything in, its, everything in its place, right? Like uh, the great, this sort of great chain of being, right? There, there isn't a huge, it's not that this is good, it's that this is practical, it's instrumental, right? This is the only way we can actually keep the train going is if we, uh, is if we maintain this kind of order. But, but it's an exercise in question begging, like, uh, because like, why, why should the train keep going, you know? And especially since everyone is kind of miserable, um, yeah, Ed Harris is miserable at the front, right? Like lick blood off her face. Woman is miserable, you know, <laughs> Tilda Swinton is miserable with her, her dentures. Yeah. And the people are, are people eating cockroaches are, are miserable. Where do the cockroaches come from? By the way, I didn't Oh, they were see- on the ground. They survive. Cockroaches always survive. We know this from other science fiction movies. What, what is it like? Roach Piercer also is there like a, <laughs> There's a little train? Is there an animated Disney version that's coming out that's just going to be the story of the bugs on this train? Well, but one interesting thing to cast all those observations. One context is that Ed Harris built the train before the world ended. Right. And Ed Harris knew that the world was going to end. Right. We learned that from the story in the in the school. Is there an implication that Ed Harris was somewhat responsible for the world ending? Could his company have had a hand in manufacturing the substance that ended up freezing the world. That's well. Now we're, is he a John Galt? Yeah. What? <laughs> we did, yeah. I, I don't think there's necessarily evidence for that. That's, Trains. Yeah. It seems Trains to me that like you know I don't know I I think we're making a, I think we're we're taking it and making it an episode of of Law and Order Special Victims Unit a little bit where we're like we want we want psychological explanations for why the people do what, what they do. And I think one of the strengths of this movie was that it, it resisted the Hollywood uh, urge, right? It, it resisted the kind of the retrograde 19th century dramaturgical urge to like, uh, to sort of work out why people are the way they are, you know, and just let was content to let people be sort of bizarre. I mean, what, why, why baptize your hatchet in fish blood? Why not? (laughs) (laughs) It's, uh, you know, it's, it's awesome. Um, there was also, I mean, I don't know. There was a lot going on in terms of like elemental, like water, fire, uh, snow, air, earth, 
you know, mm-hmm. there was a lot of there was a lot of stuff going on, and I'm not sure it I'm not sure it added I'm not sure it added up to anything. But I think that I think that the presence of of any sort of rubric like that, like that of the four elements. Um, is meant to like is meant to be a trope of of sort of completeness of like the uh of signaling that this is or is meant to be a complete allegory of the world um mm. by having by having all these elements into it even if you can't sort of map them allegorically onto uh you know onto a coherent onto a coherent philosophy uh you know i don't know it was a, it was a parable it wasn't a coherent philosophy i mean you could also see it as sort of like uh, about reproduction in the sense um like you, you were saying before, Matt, that the train is sort of uh, like a body or it's focused on uh, bodily pleasure or not pleasure. Um, like uh, Tilda Swinton putting the shoe on her head, um, sort of representing the back of the train as the feet. And then, of course, uh, Ed Harris says that the brains behind the operation, so he's the head. And then the whole body explodes in like the climax of the movie in every sense of the word. And you have like the children being born out of the train into the new society into the tunnel the train goes into the tunnel <laughs> what <laughs> yes that all that sex imagery pierces yeah. pierces the snow of of <laughs> of gaia that ice queen <laughs> <laughs> yep maybe yeah <laughs> Okay. We probably shouldn't go any farther. We should probably blow up the train here and hop off <laughs> and go uh, go meet the polar bear of the week. Um, so uh, on overthinking it this week, we we recently wrapped up the uh, the twenty four live another day recap podcast. Pete was the captain of that. Was the Ed Harris of that particular train? Thank you, sir, for for taking your under five year old children and putting them into its gears. Oh, thank you very much. Everyone was in their preordained place very briefly before accelerating to their next preordained place constantly. It was a glorious, glorious journey. Yeah. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. You can find that in the TV recaps uh, podcast feed. And and I've heard multiple reports actually from from listeners and and fellow overthinking it writers who uh, have enjoyed those recaps without actually watching 24 live another day because there is a uh, there is a plot to them they are in real time and uh and a cast of characters and i was honored to be in one um i, I was honored to be one of the characters this week we're starting the slaughterhouse five book club it's summer so that means uh that means it's summer reading time uh we have kirk vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five uh, as our book, and uh, we are starting that this week. Releasing lighthearted the- summer reading. <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. Uh, you know, as you'd expect. I mean, Ender's Game last year. Uh, the the um, the whole uh, the whole thing uh, is on overthinking it. Both the uh, podcast part, and you can subscribe to the book club podcast if you uh, if you want to get the audio downloads, and you should because that's where all the information is going to be. And then also in the forums. And by the way, there's been a pretty radical reorganization of uh, of the overthinking it forums that that required database programming because there's no way to bulk move uh, posts from one form to another in uh, the particular software we're using, which strikes me as a pretty glaring oversight. Uh, Ed Harris did not design this, uh, this forum software, that's for sure. Um, but uh, you'll find all the forum topics together. 
Uh, and this has been a long time coming. It was actually suggested uh, by a reader in the in the New Year's uh, survey that we did, and someone made the wise suggestion that that we weren't doing the kind of volume that necessitated the hyper categorized uh, forums that that I built uh, for saw you know when when we started. So we're putting them all together, and hopefully this generates uh, even more uh, excitement and energy in the forums. So you can go to the forums, uh, click forums in the main menu of overthinking it. And you'll basically have two places you can go. One is the book club and two is literally everything else. Um, and you can see all the, uh, all the topics in there, uh, that, so we, um, will be in the forums and we'll be on the podcast that starts this week. Next week, there will be another Overthinking It podcast. Till then, you can visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It It probably doesn't doesn't deserve. deserve. See, that has to come at the end of the podcast, because that's its place. are screaming and the fires are howling <laughs> way down in the engine tonight there's a man in the silver there's a man in the shadows with an axe in his hand and a blade shining oh so bright there's evil in the air and there's snow up in the sky and it harris is in satin sheets and way down in the tunnel where the ravers arrives and oh i swear i saw a young boy down in the machine he was starting to foam in the heat <laughs> Oh, baby, you're the only thing in this whole world that's pure and good and right. And wherever you are and it ever snow you pierce, there's always going to be some light. But I got to get out. I got to blow it up now before the final crack of dawn. So we got to make the most of our one time together. When it's over, you know, we'll both be so alone. Like a kid from a train, I'll be gone when the bomb goes off. When the movie's over, like a kid from a train, I'll be gone, gone, gone. Like a kid from a train, I'll be gone when the bomb goes off. But when the sun is up and the snow is white and the moon is shining through. Like a polar bear before the gates of heaven, I'll be looking on down at you. Like a polar bear before the gates of heaven, I'll come crawling on down to you. Hey. <laughs>